Well, let me start at the beginning. And yes, I do mean the beginning. In the beginning, God created that. Come on. You guys have been in church how long? Let's try this again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the very beginning, God created out of nothing everything that is and everything that was, everything that ever will be. God, whether it is a material or energy or whether it's spiritual, God unleashed it out of nothing. And in this act of separation, he created everything that we now see and everything that we don't see. In this act of separation, God continued separating things as we see it recorded in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. What does God do? He says, let there be light, and there was light. And what does he do? He, he separates the light from the dark. On the second day, what does he do? He separates water from itself, right? He puts water down below, and he separates it, the water up above. The third day, what does he do? He separates the sea from from the dry land. This process of separation continues almost indefinitely in all of creation as as the many things, the many creatures, the plants, the animals, the fungi, all the things that nobody even back then knew about, protozoa, they all were differentiated from each other and separated into what was arguably at the end of Genesis 1, a symphony of diversity and multiplicity. And this continues in chapter 2. As God, as we kind of go back to the beginning, we recapitulate and we read about the creation of humanity. As God creates Adam from the dust of the ground, what does he do? He separates a wife from him, right? He does a little, little bit of divine surgery. He cuts Adam open, takes out the rib. We could talk all, a lot about everything that that means, but what does he do? He fashions the wife and then something very interesting happens. Something which up until this point in the very short chapters of the Bible that we've read so far, what does God do? Having separated them, he does what? He brings them back together. And Adam looks at his wife and he says, you are flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. And the author of Genesis says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and become united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a first in Genesis. Glenn can correct me if I'm wrong, since he's the Old Testament professor. But I would suggest that this is a first in Genesis. And this, like the Sabbath itself, is a pointing towards something that is to come. Just as all of this separation from God himself and then from one another, all of this diversity, the goal of all of this is to bring everything back together. Not as not as you know an individual not that all of these differences would be dissolved but that all of these differences would be brought and integrated together and much like a man and a wife become one flesh even though they stay their own very unique very interesting people but having been brought back together in unity something even greater would have happened than could have ever occurred without all of this multiplicity coming into being in the first place. The problem in Genesis chapter 3, obviously, is that sin gets in the way. And where once there was separation and convergence, now there is separation and division. 
Difference causes division, breaking. We see this from Adam from his spouse as they begin to point fingers at each other there in the garden. We see this in terms of Adam being separated from creation and the ground, the, the, the earth, the ground, the soil doesn't want to cooperate with him anymore. Separation even from one's own body as women begin to struggle with pain and childbearing. As brother is separated from brother, the first human death recorded in the Bible is a murder as Cain kills Abel. And we see this highlighted, I mean, we could go through so many examples of this in the Old Testament, but especially I would point us towards the Tower of Babel. As all of these different languages are created and they might otherwise have been wonderful and good, and yet it is because of sin and it furthers sin as people are divided from each other and can no longer communicate with one another. In some ways, the history of Israel continues this process of not just separation, but of division. As the 12 tribes of Israel, appropriately separated into their tribes, become divided north from south, Israel from Judah, two different kings with two different objectives. So what does God do? He begins again. He begins again by visiting a very young woman living in the town of Nazareth. And he begins afresh with one. But this one, as Jesus says, as a seed, if it falls into the ground, it will what? It will bear much fruit. One seed falling into the ground becomes 100, 300, 600, and more. And the way the New Testament tells the story is that this is, this is a one who has come in search of his bride, having been put to death in a death-like sleep, as it were, as he was crucified on the cross, as Paul says, stretching out his arms and embracing in one body all of the different multiplicities, all the different variances, all the differences between Jew and Gentile, slave and free, men and women, and bringing them into one body, he makes them into a new man, a new kind of humanity. He brings them into his own body. And like a husband and a wife, the two become one flesh. Although there are still differences, although there are still separations, these differences and separations are no longer to cause division, but everything works towards the good of the body. Christ himself has always intended, from the very dawn of creation, to bring us into not just a family, but into his very body, into this marital relation. As he becomes our husband and we his bride, we become one flesh with him. Now, why am I saying all of this? This is a really un, uh, uh, not typical way for me to begin a sermon, is with a whole overview of biblical theology from 30,000 feet. The reason why I'm doing this is because when we come to Paul's analogy of the body here in 1 Corinthians 12, it's not an analogy. It's real. Paul is saying that what Christ is in his person, he was never intended to just be an individual. Christ always intended to be a body that could encompass all of the diversity of all of humanity as the pinnacle of creation, as what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, that he is the one who is the firstborn of all of creation and the head of the church, the one who is in himself intended to recapitulate all of humanity. Paul 
underscores the fact that Jesus was never supposed to be by himself. That when we come into this new creation kind of relationship with Jesus, that we become a part of his body. This is a common place for Paul. We see this in Romans chapter 12 as he talks about the gifts of the Spirit and the body of Christ. Um, fair enough, but he goes into extended discourses about this in Ephesians chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, as he goes into it in Colossians chapter 1, 2, and 3. This is a main metaphor, and not just metaphor, that Paul uses, because Paul understands that when Christ passed from death into life, when he, having been crucified on the third day, rose again from the dead, the natural man, the earthly man, the fleshly man, became a spiritual man, not that he left off material existence, but that he transcended into something even greater by the power of the Holy Spirit that allows him then to include all of us in his resurrected body. And that's why in the book of 1 Corinthians, when he makes mention of this body, he goes some really interesting places. In chapter 6, for instance, as he's addressing the issue of sexual immorality in the church, he says that the one who unites himself to a prostitute has united Christ to that prostitute. Well, why is that? It is because we are the body of Christ. What we do with our bodies is a reflection of Christ himself and his body. There is an organic unity that we enjoy with Christ, and that, that is what is put into contact with a prostitute when we engage in sexual immorality. Now, he's not trying to blame the prostitute here. What he's trying to do is say, church, you need to realize who you are as a part of Jesus Christ, as a part of his body, as a part of his family. You are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. We see this again in chapters 10 and 11, as Paul is discussing meat sacrificed to idols, and more specifically, the kind of body that is presented to us in the Eucharist. Christ here says, this is my body, given for you. And by participating in that body, we participate in the actual body of Christ. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say that we are one body because we all share in one bread. We have a spiritual union with Christ. We have a sacramental union with him. We find in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, as I already said, that we have an ultimate eschatological, that means end times, union with Christ in his body. And finally, we come to chapter 12, where it says our corporate union with Christ happens. If you turn with me to, cha to chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, what does Paul say? Paul says, for just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many are in one, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. What Paul is saying is that if you have gone into the body of Christ in baptism, you are truly a member of his body. If you have drunk from Christ, and there's some disagreement about whether this is a continuing reference to baptism or if this refers more to the Lord's Supper. I tend to think that it refers to the Supper, but I could be wrong. But either way, Paul is saying is that we together, as the body of Christ, we share in a living, organic reality, a oneness with Christ that means that every one of us 
has a role to play, has a function to play as the parts of a body. And in fact, it's not just that it would be a, a defective body if it didn't have all of these many parts. As one commentator says, if it, if it didn't have its members, it would not be a body. So what is the point of all of this? Paul's words here are not just a trendy exercise in organizational communication and effective structuring for nonprofit ministries. And I think this is the way sometimes we as people in the church have approached this. We look at this passage and we say, oh, okay, so we all have a job to do. We all have gifts. We all have talents. We all have things that we can contribute. Go ahead and contribute it. If you're going to be in the body of Christ, don't be an appendix, right? I mean, literally. Don't be the appendix in the body of Christ. And I think that's how we often approach this. But I think what Paul is saying is deeper. And I think it is going to be more motivating if we understand the fact that he is not talking about how to structure a nonprofit entity. He's talking about a new creation. In 2 Corinthians, he's going to say, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Your participation in your local church for most of you, this local church is all about a new creation. It's all about a resurrected reality. I think the point of what Paul is saying here in the entire passage is that the well-being and unity of Christ's body depends on your unique participation and contribution as an active, living member of that body. The body needs you. You need the body. So how do we become complacent in our responsibility to contribute as an effective member of the body? How do we, as a member, get flabby? How do we begin to lose sensation? How do we begin to lose practice, lose strength? I suspect we get distracted by a number of different things. And as a, as a way to counter that, I want to suggest the following question. How can someone like me or you Make a real contribution to the life of the church. What is it that enables us to be able to make that contribution? My thought here is that gratitude for what God has done in making us a part of his body is what is going to help us be active as members in that body. The first thing that I think that we should remember, that we should realize, is that God chooses the members of Christ's body. That is, it is not we who have chosen to be members of Christ's body. It is not we who have inserted ourselves into Christ. It is God who has grafted us into the body of Christ and made us participants in his life. Take a look at verses 14 to 20. Paul writes, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, would, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, pay attention to this, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Obviously, I emphasized that verse and that that particular reading but it is god who chooses what parts go into a body he's the one for instance that decides that a body needs a hand or a foot or an eye or an ear god is the one who has figured out what needs to go into the body and for each individual person what kind and exactly which 
part of the body is going into them. If your ear were to say, well, why am I here in the body? The answer is because God put that ear in you. God is the one who chooses. God is the one who creates the individual parts. And it, God is the one who points each member of the body into its role and into its function. The word uh, that the ESV translates here is God arranged is the Greek word that just means puts. God puts those bodies in their place. He's going to use the same word later, uh, down a couple paragraphs lower than that, when he says that God has appointed in the church first apostles. This is God's appointment of each member in the body which means that each member is a gift from God and each one has been assigned its purpose by God. I think this counteracts our own tendency to get hung up and distracted on our own sense of unworthiness. I think this is pretty common. Many of us come to the church and maybe we're new to the church and we show up and we're like, you know what? I, I have led the kind of life that no one should put me doing anything in the church. I just kind of want to steer clear of being up in front of anyone or doing these kinds of things. There are better people than me that should be doing these. And I can just, you know, go over to the wall and be a wallflower and just be happy to be here. And I say that as some, you know, the people who are new to the church sometimes end up in that um, situation. I think many of us, regardless of how long we've been in the church, often end up. Now, sometimes this is a result of private sin in our lives. That is, things that we know that we've been doing and we've been participating in and we've been struggling with, and we look at our lives and we say, well, you know what? I can't, I can't go on serving in the church. I am not worthy. I'm going to bail. Sometimes it's just a general sense of, you know what? I'm just not as good as so-and-so. But Paul says, if the members of your body started to talk to each other like that, where would your body be? You can't be all eye or all ear or all foot. It's not going to work. Stop comparing yourself to everybody else and realize that despite your unworthiness, because of God's election, because of God's choice, each body part is a member of the whole body. Because it doesn't depend on the member of the body, it depends on God who put the member in the body. Which means that because of what God wants to do, because of God's choice, each member of the body is a full member of the body. You cannot say that one body part is any less of your body than the others. Appendix included. I learned a few years ago that they've actually discovered a purpose for the appendix. Everyone thought that it was just a leftover from evolution. Apparently, it helps your microbiome, um, and it helps, you, it helps your overall gut health, um, words that you did not come to church today to hear, perhaps. But, but it is a huge help, um, believe it or not, to have an appendix. Can it be removed? Sure. And yet, nevertheless, it is a full member of your body. You could say that about almost every square inch of your, of your limbs and of your torso, of your head, of the whole thing. And Paul wants to make sure that we understand that each member operates on behalf of the whole body. Each member, in other words, makes the body what it is because it is chipping in to the entire thing. So what does this mean for us? It means that our membership in Christ's body does, depends on God's decisive love shown to us in Christ, demonstrated to us on the cross, and not our, on our own qualifications or merit. If you don't hear anything else today, let me just say, what you need to hear out of this sermon is that in Christ, you are not unworthy of the church. Let me say that again. If you come to Christ, if you are found in him, if you believe in Jesus, you are not unworthy of his church. It means that in Christ, you belong to this body of fellow believers. 
And as a result, it means that in Christ, you have a calling and a purpose within the church. Because there are no extraneous members of the body. So let's dig a little bit deeper. Not only has God chosen the members of Christ's body, God arranges the members of Christ's body. Look, for instance, at verses 21 to 26. Paul writes, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Paul is deepening his comments here. He's already alluded to the diversity that exists. One is an eye, one is an ear, one is a foot, one is a nose, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But here he gets into something that is a little bit deeper, and that is the order, the structure that exists in the church. Now, I realize that we live in a society which is fairly anti-hierarchical. We don't like order. We don't like hierarchies. We don't like things that are arranged in strict arrangements. We want to be able to say, you are free to be and do whoever you want to be. And that sounds really great. The problem is it doesn't work in the church. It doesn't work in the church because that's not how God has set it up. But God's way of doing hierarchy and order in the church is subversive of the ways in which we typically do it in the sinful fallen world in which we exist. For instance, we look at what Paul says here about the weaker parts. What does Paul say? The weaker parts that are in your body are actually essential to its proper functioning. Think about the eye. The eye is a particularly weak part of the body. And if you disagree with me, I can go over there and poke you in it. Okay? It is a part of the body which is far weaker than most of the other parts. And yet, it is essential to the body's proper functioning. Where stronger parts of the Bible, or the Bible, the body, like, you know, your elbow bone. Yeah, I don't know. Would you rather give up an eye or an elbow bone? Probably you'd rather give up the elbow if you had, if you had a choice in the matter. Paul wants to make sure that we understand that dishonorable parts are actually treated with honor. That there are parts of our bodies that we're like, I don't know, I don't particularly, you know, love this part of me. But what do we do? We end up uh, giving it special time and attention. Um, there have been many times, for instance, where, you know, I've gotten a terrible haircut or something, and I just feel so embarrassed about it. Well, what do I do then? I wear some fantastic hats, right? What we do is we begin to treat that part of our body with a little bit more honor, with a little bit more attention. The unpresentable parts, he says, I don't have to go into which ones those are, they're robed in modesty, right? We make special, we take special care to cover them up. What this means is, is that while Paul recognizes that there is an order, and later in the passage, he's going to get into some of that order. He says, God gives first apostles, then prophets, then teachers, and then he goes down the line of spiritual gifts. There is an order in the church, and yet that order exists not to serve the order, but to serve the entire body. And Paul here takes aim at any sense of entitlement. This is the second distraction that I want to bring up. It's not just our own sense of unworthiness, it's our sense of entitlement that needs to be challenged by what Paul says here. He says, the eye, for instance, cannot say, is it the eye? Yeah. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. 
because I'm the eye. I'm one of these delicate, amazing things that, you know, brings light into the body and give, and you're just a hand. I mean, you just do every little bit of dirty work, don't you? That is not the attitude that it should be existing in the body of Christ. The body of Christ needs to be able to say that the people who are placed in positions of particular honor, particular authority, particular power within the body of Christ, they are to serve the entire body, which means that they are supposed to serve the weakest. Because of God's composition, there is a countercultural order or hierarchy in how the members of the body of the church function. The powerful in the church have to become the servants of the weak. I remember being told uh, in my ordination process, reminded, and I've, I've always kept this in mind, that as you, for instance, advance in ministry in the church, let's say you become, you know, um, you know, a Bible study leader, maybe you become an altar boy or, you know, whatever it is that you're beginning to work your way up in the church and helping out and doing things, uh, and eventually you get a, ended up, end up getting ordained as a deacon, maybe eventually as a priest or even as a bishop. I was reminded that the further up in the church that you go, the lower down the totem pole you're really going. The more of an effort that you have to make in order to serve other people, the less important you are to the functioning of the church. The bishop that I worked under in Belize reminded us using a, an image taken from um, some of the liberation theologians, but he said, look, the, tree, the church is like a tree. And the theologians are the leaves. The theologians provide a lot of nutrients to the tree, uh, and yet they will regularly fall off and die. He says the clergy are more like the trunk and the stems of the tree. They last through the years. They provide a structure and a regularity. They send the nutrients that the tree needs up and down. But you know what? You can even get rid of the trunk and the sticks, the, the branches, and it'll grow back said, it is the people, the people in the pew, the people like you, like every single one of you that are the roots of the tree. If you are taken away, it doesn't grow back. He was telling this to clergy and reminding us of that we have to keep ourselves in order, and especially those of us who'd like to think of ourselves as theologians, just how epiphenomenal we really can be. But I think the point is also well made, that we who are strong or have positions of influence in the church, we are called to serve the entire body. And it's not just the people in leadership. It's also the fact that the church's hierarchy of situations and experiences is intended to serve the whole body. Paul talks about those who are suffering, the entire body is supposed to suffer along with them. Those who are experiencing a day in the sun, everyone is supposed to celebrate and rejoice with them means that God is calling each of us to serve and to build up the body of Christ in its entirety, every single one of us. Paul wants us to share your strength, your gifts, and your talents with the entire body of Christ. It's not enough to look at the pastor and say, you know what, I, he's doing all of the important work up there, preaching. No, 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 no. Your gifts are important to share with the entire body. But it's not just your gifts. Paul wants to make clear that if we are a body, if we are the body of Christ, then you are called to share not just your gifts, but your weaknesses, your pains, your suffering. One of the most important things that you can do as part of the body of Christ is to go to someone and say, I really need you to pray for me because I am going through something awful. 
That is one of the main gifts that you have to offer as part of the body of Christ, is your openness and transparency about your struggles, just as you are also called to share your accomplishments and your glories. So let's turn to the third point here. God not only chooses the members of Christ's body, not only does he arrange them, but he also equips them. God equips the members of Christ's body. And I hope this will answer one of the questions that I have always had about this passage, because in verse 31, as he talks about all of these different ministries and all of these different uh, offices, all of these different gifts that people are going to be expressing, what does he say in verse 31? He says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And you're going to say, but David, didn't you just tell us that God chooses what kind of gifts you're supposed to get, what kind of office you're going to have? Doesn't, isn't God the one that chooses your ministry for you? Well, yes. So what is he stressing here? While God does appoint the offices and gifts to the church, and he alone distributes different gifts to different members, but he also quickens and develops the gifts that he gives. That is, he doesn't just zap you one of these days and suddenly you've got the gift of administration. I would love for that to happen. I would love for God to zap me and suddenly my desk would look neat and tidy and I would be able to organize my schedule in a way that I never had before. And I would be able to relate to people and communicate a vision to them. And they would just get it and they would go out there and get it. But I got to tell you, I've been waiting for years and God has not given me that higher gift. It's not something that he just zaps people with. What God does is he empowers and equips them. I think the reason why I want to say this is because we are often held back by our own sense of inability. We look at our at what we see as our current set of gifts and talents, the things that we have to bring to the table, and we look at it all and we say, it really isn't much. I don't know what God could even do with this. But that is to be limited in our vision by what we currently possess or what we currently think that we possess. Why God actually has something much better for us, much greater for us, ways that we can contribute and collaborate that we never imagined in the first place. Because of God's empowerment, each member of the church is able to grow in grace, to grab hold of not only the gifts that God has given them, but gifts that they intuit or sense that God might have, in their, have for the future, gifts that might be necessary in, their own, in the context of their own local church. And they look around and they say, well, who is there to send? And they say, okay, here I am, send me. There isn't anybody else that can do this. Each member can grow in grace, deepen in ministry, find new ways to serve. Now, this may involve study and reflection. It may involve practice and repetition. It may involve suffering and sacrifice. But I will tell you this, it will always involve the community of Christ's body. Let me share a quick anecdote here with you. A friend of mine, uh, back when I was living in California, I just graduated from seminary, I was ordained, and he was still going to seminary. He was doing a, uh, he was doing a part-time at night, um, so really kind of struggling through it, and he was, he was basically through his entire ordination process, and then they had him take the Myers-Briggs personality inventory. Anybody done Myers-Briggs? You know, raise your hand if I see my Myers-Briggs people. Okay, just about everybody has had to do some kind of Myers-Briggs inventory, uh, and every time I take it, I get something different. Well, this guy took it, um, and he tested as an INTJ, intuitive, uh, introverted, thinking, and judging. And when he got the feedback, they sat him down, they did, him, they did the post-interview with him, and they said, you should never be involved in pastoral ministry. 
said, you're the exact opposite of what a congregation needs for a pastor. And he was just heartbroken. And I appreciated that the church came around him and said, you know what, Caleb? We still believe God has called you to this ministry. Now, it's true. You are introverted and bookish. You're very structured, and you have a hard time communicating some of your ideas to people. That's okay. We believe that God has called you to this ministry and to this office, and we're here to support you, and I think you're going to grow in some amazing ways. And it doesn't matter what you got on your Myers-Briggs personality type inventory, pseudoscience as it may be. You should go ahead in your path to ministry. And I, I can tell you, he has had an amazing ministry and impacted hundreds, maybe thousands of lives as a result. I want, to, I want to make sure that you understand the church's discernment of your vocation is based first on God's calling and not on your current capabilities or inclinations. But it is really handy to have the church, the whole body of Christ, involved in that discernment of what is actually going to serve the body. So I want to encourage you today. I want you to act on your desire to encourage and edify the body of Christ. If you're sitting here saying, okay, David, I've been listening to everything that you have to say. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to find that gift that I have for the body of Christ? How am I supposed to invest myself in other people and in the life of the church? How am I supposed to do what you're talking about doing? I'm going to say, ask yourself, what is going to build up Christ the King Church or wherever you go to church? What is it that is going to build up the body of Christ? Discern that and act on it. I think many of us, you know, not to quote you know, Jack Kennedy or something, but rather than asking, what can I, I do for my church? We ask, what can my church do for me? It is important to ask the question, what does the church need? And how can I be the one to step in and say, here I am, send me. And as you do this, I do want to encourage you, follow the wisdom of those members of the body whom you trust to speak into your life and encourage you in particular directions. One of the th- experiences that I've had as a pastor over the years is that people get a, their, an idea in their head that this would be really good and I need to do this. And it often ends up being something like, you know, preaching every Sunday. And I'm like, well, okay, let's try you out a little bit, but let's go through a process of discernment as to whether preaching is really your gift. But trust the people in your life to, who know you, who love you, who also want to see the body of Christ built up and follow their lead. Perhaps most importantly, pray. Pray about it. Pray for an increase of grace and ask others to pray with you. I will tell you this. You cannot go wrong praying about anything, literally anything. If you take it to God in prayer, if you are incorrect in what you are trying to pray for, God will thankfully ignore it. And if you're right, well, then he's going to answer it. So I wrap things up here. I, I do want to say that this two-part sermon series, just two sermons, but it's a sermon series, on spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. I want to encourage you to think as broadly about the church and about your place in it as possible. To see how the gifts that you bring to the table can effectively contribute to the unity and the effectiveness of the body of Christ as a whole. And by the body of Christ in the church, I am not just talking about the institution. The church is both an institution and an organism. I think this came out in, in our strategy document that we talked about last week. 
is we talk about those concentric circles. There is a concentric circle where we talk about the church as an institution, that is, as a corporation under Canadian law that has particular leaders and a board uh, that we call the church council that goes through processes and has bylaws. There is a church that gets together and we meet on Sunday afternoons and we need people to help. We need people to do everything from you know, volunteering to read in church, to stack chairs, to bring snacks or whatever it is. We need people to support the institution of the church. But there is that broader circle, what we might think of as the church as an organism, as a body, extending not just here on Sunday morning or in law uh, or in, as a corporation, but as the body, as the hands and feet, the eyes and the arms of Christ in the world around us, listening, speaking, being the aroma of Christ around us. I want to ask you to think about how to make that possible and how to answer Christ's call on your life. Amen.